You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, it's Mother's Day. So I thought uh, the perfect way to celebrate Mother's Day is to talk about sin and judgment. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, We're in a series talking about the big story of the Bible. So the Bible's 66 books written over over a thousand years, but it presents one unified story of God's judgment and grace, his work in the world, his uh, making a people for himself. And so last week we saw the beginning of the story with creation. Uh, God graciously gave us everything and put humanity in a paradise, a world that was very good, a world that was full of deep and intimate relationship with God and with each other. But that's not the world as we know it. We get little glimpses of it. There are, its glory kind of flashes before us in the beauty that we see in nature, in our own creativity, in the preciousness of relationships. But we don't live in the same paradise that God created. We deal with sickness and death and broken real, uh, relationships and cruelty and pain and grief. And there's also something inherently actually in her nature that tends uh, to be rebellious towards the wrong. Uh, Mothers know this better than anyone. Uh, Work can be full of toil. Rest seems fleeting. Children, as glorious and good a gift as they are, somehow inherently know how to disobey you. Uh, You don't need to teach them. They're just born with this this natural talent. And of course, it doesn't go away as we grow up. As glorious and noble and good as humanity is, it's also full of ugliness and brokenness and pain and people who have been hurt and who hurt others. And so today, we're looking at the fall. Why is the world like that? What changed? Uh, Genesis 3 actually tells us the reason for why the world is like it is. And the answer it gives is that the dysfunction and the pain and the death is in the world because of us. It locates the brokenness of this world in our hearts and the broken relationship that we have with, with God. God had said, you can eat of any of the trees except for that one. And Adam and Eve, humanity, reached out and took the fruit from that one. They rebelled against God and so wrecked their relationship with God and so wrecked the world. And we have actually done the same ever since. Wanted to live life our way and not God's way and the Bible calls it sin. Now, the most often time you come across sin in our society these days is in advertising where they're saying this is just so good that it could be a sin. It's like the advertisement for the Magnum. It's a sin. As though anything that's pleasurable and perhaps slightly fattening is a a sin. But, you know, actually God invented pleasure and chocolate and ice cream uh, 
Uh, they're good gifts of God. <laughs> and sin is actually much more serious and much more profound and much more relevant to your everyday life than that. It's our inherent bent towards messing things up, to break things, to break promises, to break relationships that we care about, to envy others or to want more and more stuff or to put ourselves first or to ignore God. These are actually the things that are messing up this world and our lives and the lives of those we know. And God didn't make the world like that. And God loves this world. And God's not going to let the world just stay that way. As a loving God, he has to bring that to an end. He has to stop it. And so he actually has to judge it. Did you know the judgment of God is actually an expression of his love? In that, it is the only way evil comes to an end. He has to stop it, and so he has to judge it. And the big problem is he has to judge us. And this is actually the great conundrum of the Bible. It's at the very heart of the story of the Bible. God loves his creation on the one hand, uh, but he has to judge it as well, to judge us. He's got to restrain evil. He's got to restore creation to the perfect place that he made it to be. And actually, the rest of the Bible after Genesis 3 is trying to work out, is a story of how God works out that conundrum of love and judgment. It's the story of God's judgment and the story of God's grace. And we have to hold them both together. We, we have to hold together the lethality of sin, that is, it kills us, and God's implacable judgment on it. And God's grace and God's love. You get rid of one or the other and you will not understand the story. And uh, we have to hold them together because actually Genesis 3 does that. Uh, you, we see very clearly in Genesis 3 that God judges. Uh, but we also see in Genesis 3 his grace. So God judges. Uh, that's really clear in Genesis 3. There are consequences for our disobedience. So, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Happy Mother's Day. And to the man he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you will return. The world will be a place of pain and toil and you will die. And that is the judgment of God. That's the judgment of God. So Genesis 3 really clearly talks about the judgment of God, but it doesn't just leave it there. It also talks about God's great grace. We have to hold both. And so God 
uh, as I look at Genesis 3, I see three ways in which we see God's grace worked out. Uh, One is God seeks them. Number two, he gives them the chance to seek him. And number three, he covers their shame. So the first grace we see is there in verse 8 of chapter 3. God seeks them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? See, the first great grace of God's response to Adam and Eve after their great rebellion is that he seeks them out. You know, God could have just judged them from afar. He's all-powerful. He's completely just and holy. And he could have said, well, they've rebelled, and I'm just going to bring that an end to that rebellion right now, drag them before my throne, and I will pass judgment. But he's a loving and he's a gracious God. He doesn't drag them before his throne. He goes out to them. He seeks them out. And Adam and Eve, they hear him coming. They hear the all-seeing and all-knowing God coming. And they think, what are we going to do? Ah, a tree. Let's hide behind that. Like, it's, it's almost comical, isn't it? It's like a two-year-old putting his hands over his eyes and thinking that no one can see him. God comes and he says, where are you? And you know it's not a request for information. He's all seeing. He knows where they are. And Adam knows that God knows. And so Adam actually answers the question that God's actually asking. God says, where are you? He says, I'm hiding. Why? And Adam needs to explain to God why he's hiding, why he's running away from God. And you know, so do I. And so do you. Why would you run from God? Why do we run from God? I think it's probably for the same reason that Adam gives. What does he say? Because I was naked. And God says, who told you? What kind of excuse is that? You've always been naked. See, it's not about the lack of clothes. Actually, it's about the loss of of innocence. It's about shame. Nakedness here is actually more about being known. It's about radical vulnerability. Why would you run from God? It's, well, because his eyes are utterly holy and just and you know that you cannot stand before those eyes. Before sin, Adam and Eve could be utterly vulnerable with each other and utterly vulnerable with God. But now they have to cover up because there's something in their lives that if other people knew would be the source of immense shame. And I wonder if we feel that in ourselves as well. We have to cover up because there's a shame about who we are. Uh, Before sin, the Bible says, chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now they need fig leaves. Because they can no longer be radically, completely vulnerable with each other. They don't want to be known. 
But God in his great grace, he seeks them out. And he won't let them not be known by him to spend their existence hiding. He's not willing to give them up to that horror. He's not willing to abandon them to that hell of being separated from him. He graciously seeks them out. Because hiding behind a tree from the all-seeing God is not really going to do the trick, is it? You know, it's as comical and pointless as hiding from God in your career. Or in your family, or through entertainment. You know, sometimes I wonder if we make ourselves so busy because we think in the busyness God won't notice us. Or we won't notice him. Or if I can erect a facade made of my own success, or I can parley the admiration of others into a significance of self, I can present that to the world and to God and hide. Hide those bits of me that I can't bear to be known. I can't be utterly vulnerable. We can't be utterly vulnerable because there are uglinesses of my heart and your heart. We can't bear to be seen. But they're fig leaves. It's like hiding from God behind a tree. And God in his grace doesn't leave us there. He actually seeks us The Bible says since the fall, there's actually only one place worth hiding. And it's not from him. It's in him. Colossians 3 verse 2, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So God comes to them and he gives them the opportunity to come to him, not to hide from him. In his grace, he actually seeks them out. Uh, But the next grace we see is that God also gives them the opportunity to seek him. He asks them what they have done. So verse 11, have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Again, you know, God's not looking for information here. He is all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He already knows the answer. So what's God doing here? Well, I think what he's doing is he's actually giving Adam and Eve the opportunity to tell God what he already knows. He's giving them the grace of confession. Uh, to of themselves enter again into the vulnerability that they actually had before, to trust him as they confess, as they're vulnerable before God, that they can still be loved. Sometimes I think we don't really believe that can happen, that we can be fully known to the very depths of who we are and still be loved. It's what we want. It's what our hearts long for. But I sometimes wonder whether we really believe it's possible. But God in his grace invites them into that place. What have you done? Open yourselves, be vulnerable, trust me. And know that I still love you. Well, what do Adam and Eve do? Well, they do what we do. 
and they creatively devise their own coverings. Instead of venturing everything, they are entrusting God and opening their hearts and their lives and their vulnerability to him, they engage in a cover-up. So Adam says, well, uh, the woman, it was the woman. It was the woman that you gave me uh, and she gave me the fruit and I ate. Uh, he's saying, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really my fault. Actually, it was a woman's fault. Actually, now that I come to think of it, you gave me that woman. So, you know, it's all your fault, really. You've only got yourself to blame, God. And the woman says, me? No, 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 no. Actually, it was, it was the snake. It was the serpent. Uh, they engage in a cover-up, and we've been doing the same ever since. There's good reasons, God, for my sins. You know, I'm, I'm really stressed and I'm not getting a lot of sleep or it doesn't seem to hurt anyone or, or, you know, there's a pandemic. So, you know, it's understandable, God. Or that person over there was really, really, really ungodly and, uh, and I really couldn't have responded in any other way. We engage in a cover-up. And too often we reject the grace God has given us in the opportunity to simply to stop and to confess that we have done wrong and be vulnerable with God and watch his gentle care of us as he ministers his grace. There is, this is a freedom that the world just doesn't know. To be able to just say, yes, I'm a sinner. And I've done wrong. Oh, what a relief it is to stop covering up. And instead, we engage in the cover-up. The thing is, though, we can't actually cover ourselves. And that's, I think, the really the next great grace of God. Is, and you see that in verse 21. God covers their shame and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, God covers their shame. You know those fig leaves? They're not really going to do the job, Adam and Eve. Let me clothe you. And it would take the first death and the first shedding of blood to properly clothe them. God makes garments out of skins. You know, I, I think he did this actually as a kindness to them, but I think he also did it as a, little, as a little covering that points to the great covering that he would bring. See, Genesis talks about clothing Adam and Eve in skins, but Isaiah 61 verse 10 talks about an even greater clothing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, their problem is still, it's not their nakedness. It's their shame. And God is the only one who can truly cover that in a way that removes it. The only one who can give righteousness. And just as it would take the first death 
and setting of blood to clothe Adam and Eve in skins, it would take a death and it would take a shedding of blood to present us with that robe of righteousness. How are we going to be clothed in righteousness? How are we going to find that fruit of the tree of life? Well, it's back there in the words of God's judgment, actually, in chapter 3. God hints at his rescue plan. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God says, right at the very beginning, at that very point where sinners come into the world, he says, someone will come, I will send someone. There would one day be a human being that would defeat Satan and overcome evil and present us with a righteousness that would give us back our innocence. Yet in the process, he would suffer pain and he would suffer loss. He shall bruise your head and he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the great hint of God's grace to come. And of course, we know now that God is speaking the very words of his judgment of his grace in saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The one whose blood was shed and who suffered death to clothe us in righteousness. The one who would destroy evil by utterly suffering it in himself. You know, God's Grace speaks loudest in his judgments. What wonderful grace. Well, would you come to this God? This God who loves you so much, you don't have to hold up the facade with him. You can be utterly yourself with him, you know. You can be totally naked before him and know that he utterly knows you and he utterly loves you. Can you be vulnerable before him and confess all that you are before him? Will you let him tenderly and gently clothe you with a righteousness that means you don't actually need to be ashamed anymore? He's paid so dearly. He's paid so dearly to give you that clothing. His own blood had to be shed for it. Would you reach out and take it? Perhaps you have before. Perhaps you never have before. But one of the great graces of God in the fall was the chance to come to him, to be vulnerable before him and confess that which we have done. And it's a grace that he gives us even now. In fact, we do it most services. Would you be vulnerable before God now? Are you willing to lay bare your shame to him so that he might bear your shame and clothe you again? I've just moved the service around a little bit and... uh, I've placed a confession just straight after the sermon. And so uh, we're going to come to God now and you have the opportunity to come before him. I'm going to give you a little bit of space to prepare your heart to do that if you'd like to. But can I say, please open yourself to God. Tell him that which he already knows. Trust him and then I'll lead us in a prayer of confession to him. And you can join in in that if you're ready and you'd like to. It's like uh, one of the confessions that we often use, but I've changed the words a little bit as we go. So I'm just going to leave a little bit of space and then we'll pray.
You are completely known. You are completely loved. Let's pray together. Merciful God, our maker and our judge, I give up hiding from you and I come to you. I have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what I have failed to do. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbours as myself. I repent and I'm sorry for all my sins. Father, forgive me. Thank you for seeking me out. Thank you for clothing me in your righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Strengthen me to love and obey you in newness of life and to live joyfully in the righteousness you give. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the God of grace has come to you. He pardons you and he sets you free from all your sins. He has clothed you in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And in him has led you to eternal life. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. Amen.